Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Chris Chinchilla. Back with a more normal show this week, I have an interview with Dan Rosanova of Confluent, the company behind Confluent Cloud, but also uh, Kafka. And I have a bunch of links for you, as always. I hope everybody is well. Uh, I hope everybody is keeping safe and healthy. It's been a very interesting week. I have a, a few things pertaining to that. So let's get right stuck in to my weekly links. First thing, an article from Zoe Kuhlman on opensource.com. Is it possible to run a conference on only free software? Free as in uh, not <laughs> free as in open source, uh, free, free license, copy left, etc., etc. Not free as in doesn't cost you anything, although obviously that equals kind of the same thing. Um, uh, as we have had to have lots of remote events, etc., etc., I've been wondering this quite a lot, so I found it interesting. Uh, this is talking about a Libre Planet from the Free Software Foundation, obviously running on as much open source and free software as possible was important to them, uh, and it details how they did this. Uh, a lot of the options there are not uh, new. There's things like um, Icecast, which is actually quite a, well, not old, but it's a mature format, shall we say. Um, GStreamer, which is a, a library that's quite common in Linux as well as other platforms. Jitsi, which is probably one of the better known open source slash free conferencing platforms. And then also things like Mumble, Etherpad, IRC, etc., etc. I think probably the one piece missing here for them was something that ties it all together. Uh, I saw a demo of Movin. Movin? Yes, move Hopin, Hopin. I saw a demo of Hopin last night that ties a lot of these things together. And that is probably something that is missing here. Although I'm guessing that participants in a free software found free software found a well free software conference are willing to put up with those kind of joins for using uh, free software. Whereas if, if other people who were not so bothered about that topic would, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it would be interesting to see if someone could create something like that. I've seen a few demos of people trying these things. I think the other problem is a lot of events have different ways they want to run as well. Uh, and some want to be live, some want to be pre-recorded, et cetera, et cetera. So there's different requirements. So in fact, in some respects, running on free software could be an interesting choice because you can kind of configure it how you want it to be. I'd also be interested to know how much time they spent getting it all to work. Uh, if the free software component wasn't fundamental to it and you weighed up how much people time you'd spent versus actually just paying for a platform. I wonder where that would lie. I wonder how many problems there were. It's it's hard to say. It, it's an interesting post anyway. Some of these I hadn't heard of. Some of I have been thinking of looking at for some time. Things like Icecast servers. This is free, but I think it's relatively expensive to run an Icecast server. I'm uh, not sure. I have looked at it before for the podcast and things like that. So it's uh, it's an interesting uh, thing to, to think about, the costs there in uh, in time as well. But it's an interesting post. It exposed me to some projects that I had thought of for events. Uh, and if you want to do the same, even if it's just certain components, then take a look. Keeping in the free software world, this was a post on Foronix from Michael Larabel. The Linux kernel depreciates the 80-character line coding limit. Now, <laughs> this is very niche. As a tech writer, uh, often when you submit your uh, writing, your documentation, 
to open source projects, you have to enforce an 80 character limit. This is often to make reviewing easier. Git is uh, doesn't really look at characters or words. It looks at positions on a line. And this doesn't always match the language, shall we say. But if you have a very long paragraph, it's it's seen by Git all as one long line. So reviewing it is quite difficult. If you ever used Google Docs, something like that, you know you can comment on individual things. Whereas with uh, Git, you have to comment on a change to a line. And a line could be several words. It could be extremely long. And it's hard to know. This is all well and good, but for writing it's a horrible experience because you have to keep false line breaking at non-natural places. I have often tried to come up with compromises for this, just making line breaks when I submit, all sorts of things like this. But it's quite interesting to see, and obviously I don't think it was for documentation purposes, that the Linux kernel has dropped this. Why, you may ask? Well, it's actually a little uh, a little nuanced here. They're actually extending it maybe to 100, which has been on other projects I've had. They also say that 80 is still preferred. <laughs> I don't know. It hasn't really uh, solved my personal issue with this line break limit. And actually, I've been talking with a group of tech writers recently about how we could figure out a way to make this compromise friendly to everybody and, and come up with some kind of tool. I don't know. I'm also intrigued to know if Git even... Uh, has the ability to be able to be more nuanced with what it checks and just none of the commercial services expose that i'm not sure but anyway it's a pathway (laughs) It's, it's a step in the direction of making a git review experience that is nice for everybody not just the developers but i think it's a long time coming until that is uh is is realized so we shall see but anyway it was an interesting uh, news item that jumped out to me and probably only appeals to me and about three other people. But there you go. It's my show. A post here from Patrick Woods on the Orbit blog. Slack versus Discord versus Discourse, the best tools for your community. I won't really go into any great detail on this post. You can just go and take a look yourself. But uh, it's quite a nice little summary of advantages and disadvantages for community platforms and which ones might suit you and your community. I've heard some of these discussions before. The obvious ones are usually that Slack requires a different account for every channel, whereas Discourse doesn't. And this has its positives and negatives. There's not really, uh, it's not really that one is better than the other. Some have their uses and some don't. I sometimes like the fact that uh, that Slack has different accounts, but it also sometimes gets annoying. But I also kind of dislike sometimes that I have gamer groups in Discourse and also work groups, all tied to the same email address. And if I lose that email address, which you know I may do if it's because it's tied to the job, it's kind of confusing and, and annoying, and you have to have the same icon. But at the same time, Discourse allows for more customization of your profile to indicate interests, uh, preferred pronouns, and all sorts of things like this. So, yes, <laughs> and Discourse is of course something quite different from those two. So, lots of weighing up in this article, and if you've been looking for something. To, to replace or to start from afresh, then take a look. Next, something by Benji Edwards on Fast Company. Always love a bit of vintage computing history. The untold story of Atari founders, the, the untold story of Atari founder Nolan Bushnell's visionary 1980s tech incubator. Nolan was one of the creators of Atari. I think he's one of these sort of entrepreneurs who hit lucky very early and then was somewhat always trying to to re-rise to, to those heights. And he had lots and lots of crazy ideas throughout most of his life, apparently, including uh, Chuck E. Cheese, which I don't really know, 
being not being American, but I gather is was a pretty popular like, uh, arcade food chain in the US, and then had this incubator for some time. And a lot of the uh, companies in it, well, some of them went on to be acquired, went on to influence all sorts of interesting things, including GPS in a car, things like that. But fundamentally, a lot of uh, his, his venture backing failed. And he started in later years to be treated as a little bit of a joke in tech, I think, that uh, he would always be jumping on the latest idea and it never really getting fully realized. He'd lose interest, move on to the next thing, and he'd kind of start and not finish so many things that people started to almost sort of not not touch him anymore, uh, which is a little sad, but I, I think this is often the, the case. Um, and even Atari, you know, was a bright light for a period of time, but crashed itself. So interesting story. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't seem like he was particularly bothered by this, <laughs> from what I can tell. Uh, he seemed to enjoy himself doing all these things, so that's fine. And I'm guessing he had enough money between each venture to keep going, which would be a wonderful thing to do, just to sink money into ideas that you believe in and not really be too bothered if uh, if they fail or not. But anyway, it's a nice little uh, article. Some of the ideas in here always remind me again of when you think something is new and you realize it isn't at all, uh, and especially in technology. But enjoy. A post here from the Ultima blog from Shard Jahangir, Developer Experience 101. I throw this in because I have started uh, stealth launching. I haven't really been promoting it very much because I'm still learning and figuring out the best way to do it. My DX uh, teardown, it's called Developer Experience Teardown. I think that's a work in progress name on um, sort of going through developer experience of projects. And uh, a lot of people still don't really know what developer experience is. How does it relate to user experience? Well, developers are users, they have particular needs, that kind of thing. So if you have been wondering what it may or mean, what it's all about, I found this post very useful to frame a lot of what I have been thinking. Um, And I often consider myself as a tech writer, a part of developer experience, not a tech writer. Documentation is a fundamental part of developer experience, but if the underlying project product is, 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 is is not great, then documentation can only take it so far. So this was a really good roundup and framing for me of uh, what it's all about and uh, kind of what I want to, the questions I want to pose and challenge in my video streams as well. So I found this very useful. Hopefully you will too. Rounding up with a little bit of tech-centered politics right now and current affairs, this was an article on MIT Technology Review from Tanya Basu about how Google Docs became the social media of resistance. And I I kind of, I guess I saw these things, but they passed me by slightly. I think, again, possibly more prevalent in the US, although I have seen a few floating around here. This was when there have been problems during lockdown, during layoffs, during the, the protests going on at the moment, that people pass around Google Docs, spreadsheets, documents with uh, top 10 lists, with resources, with people looking to hire, et cetera, et cetera. And... It's strange, I never really thought about it as a, as a tool of resistance, but in some ways they are. I mean, having it in a centralized, data-driven company like Google could be problematic. It's hard to know exactly. I don't know. Um, and I guess this ease of Google Docs and ease of sharing and allowing people to edit or not edit is, is an interesting one. Uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. Last night I joined a meetup. Um, about neurodiversity and accessibility and it was 
spammed on Google Meet by people, shall we say, quite widely so. And it made me think that it was strangely easy for that to happen in Google Meet. But Google Docs is reasonably good at preventing people from spamming things because you can have suggestions and stuff like that. I mean, of course, you can get spam suggestions, but you can apply them differently and you can give more nuanced permissions. It's, it's kind of interesting to to think about how how you give people the right to access and edit documents, but not everybody, and especially when there are sort of divisive opinions on the topic itself. Anyway, um, and I guess because... As a technical person, I've always preferred things like Git, but Git has a barrier to entry for for people to submit to. And yeah, I wish it was easier because it gives better control in some respects, but it's still a bit fiddly. And this kind of comes back to an earlier thing I said about uh, this tool that some tech writers and I are creating and, and thinking about how people can access it. And Git is wonderful, but it's still difficult for people to get started with. And if you'd be doing all this in repositories instead, would there have been widespread spreading of these kind of resources? I'm not sure. It would be only amongst certain communities, I suppose. Anyway, interesting. And some of these it mentions here, though, I don't think there are any links in the article, but uh, it would be interesting to actually see some of them and see how useful some people have found some of these. And finally, uh, Fast Company from Chris, uh, from Chris Gilliard. Tech companies caring about Black Lives Matter is too little too late. There's uh, been a lot the past few weeks. I've got to find how he describes it here. Ethics washing is one word. Um, I found a better one. Performative wokeness. That was it. (laughs) It's pretty good. Um, So, yes, just how a lot of companies, especially in America, are putting out these somewhat generic statements of support. But uh, these, some of these companies have been responsible for flaming the fire in the first place, shall we say. And, and this has actually been bothering me slightly. It was a little bit like when the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic started as well. And you just kept getting these constant emails about the same old thing of we are continuing to work and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, I don't know how useful that is. Uh, maybe the, diff- the topic's different. I'm not sure anyway. Maybe that was um, a bit misleading what I just said there. But... This aspect of support in a statement is one thing. It's welcome, it's useful, but it's it's not much. Support in business practices, support in not helping police departments profile people in a bad way, not helping stoke paranoia in certain neighbourhoods. This is sort of regarding Ring, for example. Um, or for companies that... Have, don't have a very diverse workforce or have actively, well, not actively, but inactively not supported uh, black workers and, and things like that. And you just put out a, a sort of somewhat empty statement. It doesn't necessarily forgive you of, of those those uh, those activities, I suppose. Um, and there's a lot of it happening. I would be very interested to hear from members of the kind of the, the, the community to know how they feel about some of these statements. I suppose it depends who it comes from. Um, yeah, and I think there's going to be more and more over the next few weeks. It's been difficult for someone like myself, a, a white man, to take much, to know quite how to to be involved in this. Um, there's things like this that bother me, and you kind of want to critique and and but and weigh in, but then you also don't feel like 
you really were in a position to do that. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yes, <laughs> this is why I sort of left the issue to much more qualified people to talk about last episode. But this one caught my attention in particular because I've seen a lot of it recently and you wonder how effective it really is to members of the community and how it can sometimes maybe feel a bit shallow. Anyway, um, have a read and make up your own mind and I'd love to hear your opinions on this article or any of the others you have heard throughout the show. That is uh, kristenchiller.com and you can find my contact details there. That was my links for the week. I now have an interview with Dan Rosanova of Confluent. We talk about Confluent Cloud, we talk about Kafka and many other things. Enjoy. So my name's Dan Rosanova. I'm a group product manager for Confluent Cloud. So I'm the, the head of product for Confluent Cloud. And uh, Confluent is uh, you know a streaming company. We, uh, we came out of uh, Apache Kafka, so the originators of Kafka founded Confluent. And our total focus is on on how to attack the world of streaming of data, really, through a streaming lens, um, and the emerging space of, uh, of kind of real time stream processing and real time stream intelligence uh, from end to end. Okay, let's uh, unpack a few of those terms. Some of them might be more familiar yeah. than others to people. Uh, let's start with uh, what is event or or even just streaming for the the first part. Yeah, this this is a funny one. Some of these get pretty uh, uh, subtle. And please uh, call me out if I'm getting too deep on that. I've been in the messaging space for like 20 years. So, I, I understand uh, them. I'm just asking them more for the benefit of those who don't. Uh, absolutely. Um, so streaming, is the way I would see it is that streaming is a specific type of messaging or of data movement that's very different than like queuing. Uh, which is where you're really thinking about the, the unit of work and queues is the individual message. Uh, but I think the easiest way to describe it uh, is that the unit of work in a stream is the sequence of messages. So it's the stream of messages rather than just any one. Um, that's, I mean, that's a pretty esoteric definition, but uh, it, it tends to work because the the focus point is not on individual, like do this event or this event happened. It's the story you're putting together from the whole set of data. Uh, so uh, streams exist in places you might not expect, like the transaction log of a database. Um, so, you know, a database is just a materialized view on top of a stream. Um, they also exist in places you would expect, like uh, logs from software or click streams or things like that. Uh, so, um, I guess the clickstream is a good example is the clickstream is interesting, but any one data point in the clickstream is not really all that interesting by itself. You know, what a user is doing in your app or on your site or something uh, together is a story and that story is a stream. Okay. And I'm guessing streaming is, is sort of a bigger deal than maybe it was even five, six years ago uh, because a lot of products, applications, services these days are generating a lot more data and events and points of data than they used to. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. And I think part of that is because Kafka helped to usher in a Kafka and the cloud, actually two things sort of happening, helped to usher in a time where we live now that uh, capturing this data is cheaper than it's ever been. So there have been, there's been a lot of data coming off of things like SCADA systems and stuff for decades. 
but it's been so expensive to capture it or in real time, especially to do anything with it, that for the most part, that data all around the world is pretty much being piped to DevNull. Um, and now that's changing. And so now people are turning on the tracing that they have. They're, you know, they're able to do more with this data because it's not so cost prohibitive. If you, you think about like what messaging systems were 10, 20 years ago, you know, running on mainframes or with like TIBCO or something, you're paying a lot of money for each individual message. And so the, the, it just didn't make sense to track a lot of stuff that today it does because the cost is so much lower. And also, I guess the, the aspect of um, not even just microservices, although that is sort of one part of it, but the fact that uh, data is often coming from slash streaming from multiple different devices, um, not even just sort of uh, devices that are intended to give back metrics, but even just people, um, uh, say, looking at uh, an e-commerce solution on one device, jumping to another, jumping back to another. Um, and so you can get sources of information that might all be related or not from multiple different devices and trying to aggregate and um, analyze all of those is where these sorts of platforms come in. Is that roughly right? Or? It, it, it's certainly a place where they're popular. Uh, and you've, you've hit on the, the other side of not only is it kind of more affordable to do these things now, the problem space has actually become more, more complex. <laughs> uh, and a, a great example is I'm sitting here and I have a phone a tablet and a computer yep. all made by the same maker, but you know, they're, they're talking to each other, yep. but all the software I'm using, like, I mean, we're using a piece of Google software right now. Um, and it can track me, you know, yep. the, the provider can track <laughs> me across all of these things. And so the stream of data is quite big. And it, it's also, I think grown because at first people just looked at streaming as a replacement for messaging. Mm. And then they started to realize, no, this isn't a replacement for messaging. This is something really different because like messaging stuff, like buying or selling stocks or transferring money to your bank account, that's still working great on messaging. Mm -hmm. I don't really see a big reason to change that. But all this other stuff around that is not really a fit for messaging and is much more natively fit to streaming. And the, the cross-device experiences you just described, I don't know how you do that other than streaming, frankly. <laughs> I'm sure people try. <laughs> By burning money, that's how. <laughs> okay, so let's get to Kafka itself. Um I mean, Kafka is one of those pieces of software that, uh, or those projects, but it is an Apache project, let, let's refer to it in its proper way, um, that it sort of feels like it's been around forever, but I don't think it has. It's probably reasonably new. What's what's kind of the history of Kafka and and why did the people who create it create it? What was it replacing? What's it sitting alongside? What's its sort of quickly potted history? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so I can tell you a little bit of the kind of folklore and stuff that I hear from inside Confluent, but I can also give you my perspective before coming to Confluent and looking at it as just a, a, a deep user of the messaging uh, world. Um, and the the first thing I would say, like the kind of folklore story or the story I hear from from Jay, who's, who wrote the first version of Kafka, is, is that uh, this is really about overcoming the challenge of how slow and expensive it was to move data around within LinkedIn. Um, the big data sets, uh, hard to move around, uh, hard to work with, um, and, you know, a patchwork of point-to-point -point stuff. Uh, and those are all things that kind of make sense uh, from the messaging space. The, the key thing, which is really quite unique from it and, and was a, a big step in a new direction, is that 
when you look at almost all messaging software uh, tends to be like queue based store and forward and you can describe it as being a uh, a server side cursor so it's a lot like a database um, and kafka is a distributed log that's a client side cursor fundamentally um, and just like on a database that actually means you can get some really interesting characteristics especially with speed um, and cost being low uh, but you know you make some trade-offs to get there and so for instance in a queue you you read the message and it goes away out of a queue or you complete it that's not the case in, in a Kafka topic. Uh, the message is still there. It can age out and other things, but uh, other people can read it or you can rewind the stream and read it again if you wanted to. So there's different characteristics that make it very unique from all the messaging stuff that came before it um, and, and really quite powerful. Uh, it's, it's kind of some of that stuff that seems very subtle at first, but as you start to wrap your head around it, uh, which admittedly, I mean, I've been in messaging for more than 10 years before I'd even heard of Kafka, um, 15 years, I think. And it still took me a while to get it because uh, my my lens was Q. So I thought, oh, it was like a Q. And it's especially because it used the word topic, which messaging systems also use. Um, but that's not the case. It's actually quite different. Uh, and once you understand that, you unlock all the flexibility and power. It's like a constantly flowing Q. I actually think that the best analogy I use for it really is like plumbing. Um, because you, it, it, that's what it is. It's a stream, it's water, it's, it's, it, the water is the information and it's going all the time. And, and is, I mean, Kafka is an open source project. Um, are there any others that uh, have a follow similar concepts? Uh, is event streaming unique to Kafka? Or I, I strongly suspect there are other um, alternatives, but maybe Kafka just uh, is the most, is the best known one. Um, yeah, they're all subtly different. Actually, we are living in a time of, of true messaging proliferation. So uh, a messaging wonk like myself is like more excited than I've ever been because there are a lot of open source platforms for messaging. Uh, and there are things like Zero MQ. There's been Rabbit MQ for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff out there, Active MQ. Um, but they all kind of do things slightly differently. And uh, Kafka is the, the one really targeted towards being a stream platform uh, right now. But it, the idea of event streaming uh, predates it by far uh, it, as like an architectural pattern and event sourcing even as an architectural pattern. Uh, and that goes back at least 15 years. Um, and uh, people had mixed results using queues to try and do event sourcing, like the tool when event sourcing first came up the tools being used just weren't the right tools to achieve it. So I think it had a rough time in the noughties um, just because it was it's hard to make a queue do something that's really a stream. Um, and then a, a bunch of software came up to do event sourcing uh, as like a pattern built into software. Uh, some of it open source, some of it not. And uh, then we land where we are now, where we kind of have the architectural pattern of event sourcing separated from the infrastructure, which today the kind of best fitting infrastructure would be Kafka. Where, do, where does Confluent come into Kafka? I think the two names, well, I mean, in the, in the world that I operate in, maybe not to everybody, but uh, they, they seem fairly closely tied. But Kafka is an Apache project. I mean, anyone can use it if they want. Um, but Confluent are also fairly... Uh, big player behind it. 
Um, let's maybe go back a step first and say, how did Kafka get from LinkedIn to Confluent? Yeah, that one, I, I don't actually have all the details on that. But uh, so I'm probably not the right person to, to answer the historical aspects. Um, but I know how how the people got from LinkedIn to Confluent. <laughs> that's that's fine. I mean, it's not an unusual story. I mean, um, there's this uh, data stacks with Cassandra and, and, you know, Cassandra came from uh, Facebook. So it's not an unusual story. <laughs> anyway, so, okay. Um, but is how... In terms of open source community, then, uh, how much does Confluent influence Kafka? Uh, and how many of your staff are building it versus the, the community at large? Yeah, we're, we're still the majority uh, contributor, uh, but uh, there are a lot of non-Confluent people contributing uh, to Kafka. And then this is an interesting thing, which, which, I, which actually attracted me to Confluent. Um, and actually attracted me to uh, to Apache altogether uh, before when I when I worked at Microsoft, is that uh, the Apache way, like the ASF, is structured in a way where no one company can really fully dominate a community. Uh, it actually protects everyone in the community really well. So, and that includes companies like Confluent, but it also includes users. It actually includes competitors to Confluent. So it's really a playing field where where uh, I think all interests are being looked after well. Uh, you know, nothing's perfect, but I think it's the best thing out there. And, uh, it, and having been one of those competitors in this space at Microsoft, uh, it, you know, I can see from both sides now how uh, ASF was protecting different interests all in the same place. So what that really means is that Confluent couldn't just unilaterally decide to go change things in Apache Kafka, um, which I actually think is a good thing. Um, and if Confluent decided, uh, you know, next month that we wanted to make toasters instead for some reason, uh, the the Kafka community would be able to live on without us, uh, which I also think is a good thing, especially when you think about why are people really choosing open source. I've never really bought the idea that the argument that it's quote unquote cheaper. It's that it's it's the flexibility and the certainty. You know, it's all these other aspects that make it probably cheaper altogether, but like. It's more than just money. I think that the cheaper thing is often the case of if you want to leave, it's cheaper. <laughs> if you want to switch <laughs> providers and that kind of thing is, is yeah. often the cost. Uh, it depends how you do it, of course. And, and we'll get to how you could help with that very soon because that's actually kind of the, the interesting point with um, something like uh, what Confluent offers. But I just wanted to dig into one more thing just to clarify a, a couple of things before we get to the Confluent side of things. What is the difference between uh, Kafka and KSQLDB? Ah, uh, yes. So uh, KSQLDB is a, you think about it like a, a stack or like a pyramid, and uh, you have layers of infrastructure below it, and you build up and get above that. And so KSQLDB is a higher level uh, kind of application platform on top of like stream application platform, streaming database on top of uh, KStreams, which is on top of Kafka. So, yeah, <laughs> yes. And two, two of those three things are Apache open source. 
And then the one that's really doing a lot of sophisticated stuff to tie all the capabilities together is uh, KSQL DB. Okay. And that's a specific Confluent project or product? Yes. It okay. Is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then the Confluent platform, I'm mm-hmm. guessing this is a commercial offering of Kafka with some Confluent magic. Um, what do you add on top of Kafka? Uh, yeah, it, interestingly, so there's some on top and there's some beneath actually. Um, and what Confluent Platform really is, is the, is the lessons, the aggregate lessons we've learned from running Kafka, both uh, for customers, with customers and in our cloud um, and packaged into software that you can run anywhere. Um, so it's actually a lot of stuff we've learned from the cloud regarding scaling, regarding stability, uh, regarding IP that kind of plugs into to Kafka to make management uh, easier, to make resiliency better uh, when you're doing things like data balancing in particular, like rebalancing data. Uh, but uh, it's very close to what we actually do in the cloud. Uh, so we've really become kind of a cloud first company. Um, and it's, you know, cloud, as much as I want cloud to be everyone for everyone, because I'm a cloud person, have been for a while. Um, you have lots of times and places where, you know, people don't want cloud, or uh, okay. they want private okay. cloud, or other things like that. Yeah. So it's our answer to be able to run anywhere to do hybrid, uh, you know, the non-cloud platform of, of Confluent. And one aspect uh, I always find interesting with some of the commercial offerings of open source projects is this, um, it's just one feature. I haven't, uh, haven't uh, gone into the depths of it, but uh, for more for the operators, you know, I think we're all used to having worked in places where you have um, some kind of data system that's mostly managed by developers. And then when someone actually wants to analyze information in it, you always have to go to a developer, run some kind of extraction process, and then you get your data somehow. Whereas some of these um, new commercial offerings add on uh, tools that mean that those people can do what they want without having to do that. And maybe I have completely misunderstood <laughs> what you're offering here, but the is this roughly around the, you've got this uh, GUI-driven management and monitoring, or is that more on literally management and monitoring, not around um, kind of uh, the understanding of, of what's going on? Uh, I think it's, it's all of those things. I think it's definitely uh, management and monitoring. I think the visibility and understanding is an, is an important piece. Um, a, a lot of our tools are focused at taking, so like Apache Kafka is really cool and it's really powerful and it's actually very stable too, but managing it like in, a, in an environment where things change, uh, which actually kind of foreshadows our elastic theme, uh, becomes really complicated. Uh, so just rebalancing data on brokers is a a very involved, complex operation, and it's something that that Confluent Platform makes easier because of the things we've the the, the automation we've built into the Kafka kind of eco- management ecosystem. Um, and so that's you know it's still our core is is upstream Apache Kafka, but the experience you're getting from it is as close to being like a SaaS or managed platform as you're going to get uh, on-prem. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's get to the cloud. Um, also like the fact you've managed to 
trademark. It looks like you've trademarked cloud, but I think you've trademarked confident cloud. If you trademark cloud, <laughs> that would be quite interesting. Um, so now, what? Okay, what what is your confident? Oh dear, what is your confluent cloud? What are you adding to to Kafka? What are you adding beyond the um, the um, platform? for the, the cloud offering? Is it purely that convenience or is there more as well? So, so the, the cloud is a vast space with a lot of different components in it and different types of cloud, of quote unquote cloud, of like uh, IaaS, uh, PaaS, SaaS, all these different things. Um, and the specific place that Confluent Cloud sits in is we are focusing on the streaming sector and not just Kafka, more than Kafka, um, so upstream and downstream, more than Kafka, things like KSQL, DB, things like Connect as well. Uh, but really importantly, we're not focusing on being like a hosting provider or you know man or or outsourced managed service. We're focused on really being a SaaS, um, and that actually comes to the fore pretty well when we talk about the Elastic story. And that's because well, one of the things of the cloud is that it's supposed to be elastic, right? Um, that's that's what the cloud is all about, but when you go look at an, a running application, like a running data stream, you know there's messages going through it, there's data flowing, there's processing happening. When you need to scale that, because it's all servers somewhere, um, now you actually need to reshuffle the workload distribution across machines. And that's actually really complicated. So uh, don't get me wrong, having worked in a major cloud provider, I know it's complicated to spin up VMs in a big scale way, whatever. But just getting those VMs into your account isn't going to help you actually shift that workload. So managing and shifting that workload in real time without taking it down is actually really hard. And that's the type of stuff that Confluent Cloud does. Uh, that, that really, my goal would be to make it the experience that people have, that salespeople have with Salesforce, but for very technical streaming workloads. So you say it's not a managed service, but when I look at the top of the page, I can see you support AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. So uh, just quickly fill in the gap there for me of quite how, if I was to, to sign up and want to use it, how what would happen next? Yeah, so what's ha we have a few different ways you would use it. They all look to you as the user the same, which including which cloud provider, is that you would pick a cloud provider, and then we are running infrastructure in that cloud provider. But rather than just running Kafka, we're running our whole suite of things that manage Kafka and, and add other things to it, like Connect and KSQL. And so your experience is you don't ever see servers. Uh, you don't ever see uh, uh, you know, lower level details like disks and things like that. You literally just have a portal experience where, or CLI experience where you're working with constructs like topics, um, where you're just streaming in data, where scale is happening for you behind the scenes. Um, and uh, you're getting a pay-as-you-go sort of experience out of it. And, uh, I mean, I'm guessing uh, this is a subject I like to bring up a lot, even though I think it's still a problem. <laughs> it's this, this aspect of uh, not letting the cloud providers take away your business. Um, is this something that you only kind of offer from, from your end, as it were, or do you also let the providers offer it directly from their end as well? Or do people have to go through Confluent Cloud to get Confluent Cloud? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question as well, actually. Uh, oddly, 
uh, almost counterintuitively, we have a really good relationship with all the cloud providers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're really partners of theirs. Uh, I have reasons I won't necessarily say that I think that's partially true, just that they're at really big, I mean, amazing mm -hmm. scale and really competing with each other. Um, and they see us more as a partner than a competitor, frankly, all, all, all three of them do. Um, and uh, uh, all of them have marketplaces as well. And you can actually get marketplaces today through Google and, 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 and Azure's marketplace. You can get Confluent Cloud already. Uh, so you can go right into the Azure marketplace, find Confluent Cloud. You pay through for it through Azure. You know, so the whole industry is, is moving in that direction where this marketplaces thing from the major cloud providers is incorporating, uh, you know, more niche or more specialized cloud providers. Uh, and we're, we're in that space. Now, you've mentioned this Elastic uh, several times. And I mean, every mm -hmm. time you say it, I keep thinking of something else. Probably not what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> But uh, and this is part of this uh, project metamorphosis, and I'm surprised you do not leverage the whole Kafka connection more, to be honest with you, in your marketing. <laughs> well done. It's taken a while, but uh, here's one. Um, as far as I can tell, project metamorphosis is, is not just one thing. We're going to talk about one thing right now, um, but it looks more like a sort of long-term uh, feature release around your Confluent Cloud. And this first one is the elastic clusters. So, and I have a reasonably good guess of what is meant by that term, but what do you mean by it? Yeah, so what we really mean uh, is getting back to that uh, concept I was bringing up before of dynamically scaling workloads, meaning actually placing them on machines that are, that are running the workload without any user intervention and without you having to you know, deal with anything that way. Uh, so for us, elastic means that you can scale from, you know, a few megabytes a second to 100 megabytes a second to even gigabytes a second. Um, and you don't have to take any downtime. You don't have to uh, procure any VMs or set up any connectivity or anything else. Your same application is you as a Kafka user. Your your interface with Kafka is clients. It's a producer and a consumer. Um, and you would not see a change at all, but we would be moving your workload around to, to let it take advantage of more or less capacity, depending on what your needs are. Um, so Elastic for us is really about fulfilling that promise, which is taking the kind of bare infrastructure ingredients that cloud providers give us and extending them to give you elasticity in your streaming uh, application. Is this elasticity as seamless as it sounds like it will i don't have to i mean you know a, a developer slash devops person could accomplish something similar with a whole bunch of setups with kubernetes and, and things like that if they wanted to and um, that obviously involves some some work is your elasticity as, as seamless as you make it sound it literally just i say literally just does it i mean obviously there's more going on behind the scenes but um, it, it's, it, it just does it as far as the operator is concerned and you get the capacity you need. It does. And uh, the, the one way I'll caveat that is that at very high scales, uh, elasticity takes time. Uh, so if you're going from hundreds of megabytes to gigabytes, you know, that, that's going to take time, but there's no human intervention in it. And the kind of most terrifying part of managing a messaging system is when you have to change it while it's running. It's kind of like changing the tires in your car. 
while you're driving down the street. Or a better example, I think, would be changing a four-cylinder engine to an eight-cylinder engine because you want to go faster, um, but while you're driving. And you can do these things yourself. Uh, they're hard and they are fraught with risk. Um, and that is, uh, and then they're manual because you're having to do them. And there are tools that will help you do them, but you now are responsible for running those tools. And what we've done, our user experience is that there are none of these things to do. You just pick how big do you want to go, like approximately, and we will take care of the scaling okay. aspect yeah, That was going to be my next question. I mean, elasticity is, is great, but can potentially be expensive if you're not careful. So you can set kind of upper limits in terms of resources, in terms of budget, et cetera. And when those are reached, then, and I'm sure you have, you, I mean, I know you, I can see here, you have your own limits as well, depending what package people take. Um, but, you know, I, I could do the, the same thing as well. I can say, well, you know, we're a bit tight on, on, <laughs> on budget this month. We want to keep it below these levels, even though it might be a bad experience. There's an option to set some manual overrides and things like that. There are, especially at very high scales, um, and especially because as more things get into the streaming space, what we're seeing a lot is people are moving like ETL jobs to start using streaming. And an ETL job is something, if it runs in the middle of the night, that you might not care if it takes five minutes or Mm -hmm. 50 minutes. Um, But if you have to pay for a bunch of capacity you don't really need, you probably will care. Uh, So some things are totally acceptable to let take longer um, and just not scale, and and that will work fine. And I guess... Elasticity can also work back the other way. It's, it scales down again when it's not needed. Yes. In, in We have two flavors, really, of our cloud. One is a single tenant and one is multi-tenant. For the multi-tenant one, uh, we actually have a scale to zero product. And so you can literally scale to zero where you're not paying for anything. Uh, and then when you scale back up, you pay for the data that you're streaming in and out. And if you're if you're keeping it in our cloud, we charge you for that. But we do have a good scale to zero, true scale to zero story there. You've you've kind of got these monthly um, uh, announcements. Well, we've only had one so far. Let's hope they continue. Um, with the general overall uh, strategy, with the, the the banner is unveiling the next gen event streaming platform. So, can you give? Can you give any? vague indications of what else people can expect or at least what problems you're looking to solve with these future announcements? Well, I I would say the reason we started with Elastic is because it's like a foundation on which you build other things. And uh, all of these will be building on top of each other over the rest of the year uh, and ending in a place where you really do have a, even if it's on-prem, a SaaS experience for streaming. Um, and so I can't think too much more, uh, but, uh, but I would say, think about it like a pyramid yeah. of things. That are Maybe we can catch up again in, in August, September and see what else was announced. <laughs> yeah. um, just, uh, with the elastic scaling, I mean, it's only been a week. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you probably had some, um, some clients behind the scenes testing it before that anyway. Um, but, uh, how well has it been received so far? So far, pretty well, actually. Uh, the the kind of break we have between the single and multi-tenant means that most people fit in that under 100 megabyte per second multi-tenant thing that can scale down to zero. Uh, but we do actually have gigabyte per second customers, and a lot of their workloads are periodic. Uh, so they're already getting the benefit of being able to self-scale uh, a, a workload from megabytes to gigabytes 
Uh, and yeah, we've, we've actually had pretty good uptake for the one or two weeks. I, I, God, it has only been one week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it has. I just checked. Yeah. I think we've all lost track of, of time right now. Uh, <laughs> and just out of interest, I think the final question for me, I always have my open source hat on. Um, how many of these, I actually saw in the blog post for the Elastic Scaling, uh, some indication of this. How many of these changes that are somewhat specific to to your platform end up going back into the Kafka project? Uh, yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting uh, way to phrase it. I would actually kind of look at it a little bit differently. And it's that uh, rather than us feeding stuff we've built into Kafka, we actually feed stuff into Kafka that will help us down the line. Um, so uh, it actually, I, I, we do think about it. Yeah, we think what do we need in our platform? What do we need for our platform? And then what would actually work well and fit in the spirit of ASF uh, through Kafka that we can contribute there. Uh, so there are things like KIP 500 is a perfect example that's good for everybody. Um, and we want that for our cloud, but you know, the whole community wants it. So that's kind of the way we're working. Cool. And uh, I can see if people look at the, um, the holding page for Project Metamorphosis Elastic Scaling, fill in some dashes there and you'll find the URL. Um, there's actually, uh, I can't exactly know when this is going to come out, but there is a likelihood there will be some kind of online event to tell you more <laughs> within a few days of whenever this goes out. I can see a few dates here that we probably won't make, but um, maybe one of the later ones in the month uh, that people might, if people are interested in finding out more. But beyond that, um, any other recommendations of where people can find out more, where they can try some of these things? Um, yeah, where can people find out more? Absolutely. Confluent.io is our website and confluent.cloud. Uh, try spin up for free. Uh, you get free credits to use it. It's, uh, it is a cool, fast, self-serve experience. Performative wokeness. That was it. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, so, yes, just how a lot of companies, especially in America, are putting out these somewhat generic statements of support. But uh, these some of these companies have been responsible for flaming the fire in the first place, shall we say. And, and this has actually been bothering me slightly. It was a little bit like when the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic started as well and you just kept getting these constant emails about the same old thing of we are continuing to work and etc etc and it's like i don't know how useful that is uh maybe the, diff the topic's different i'm not sure anyway maybe that was um a bit misleading what i just said there but this aspect of support in a statement is one thing it's welcome it's useful but it's it's not much support in business practices support in not helping police departments profile people in a bad way, not helping stoke paranoia in certain neighbourhoods. This is sort of regarding Ring, for example. Um, or for companies that have don't have a very diverse workforce or have actively, well, not actively, but inactively not supported uh, black workers and, and things like that. And you just put out a, a sort of somewhat empty statement. It doesn't necessarily forgive you of of those those uh those activities i suppose um and there's a lot of it happening i would be very interested to hear from members of the kind of the, the, the community to know how they feel about some of these statements i suppose it depends who it comes from 
Um, yeah, and I think there's going to be more and more over the next few weeks. It's been difficult for someone like myself, a, a white man, to take much, to know quite how to, to be involved in this. Um, there's things like this that bother me and you kind of want to critique and, and, but, and weigh in, but then you also don't feel like you really were in a position to do that. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, yes, <laughs> this is why I sort of left the issue to much more qualified people to talk about last episode. But this one caught my attention in particular because I've seen a lot of it recently and you wonder how effective it really is to members of the community and how it can sometimes maybe feel a bit shallow. Anyway, um, have a read and make up your own mind and I'd love to hear your opinions on this article or any of the others you have heard throughout the show. That is kristenchiller.com uh, and you can find my contact details there. That was my links for the week. I now have an interview with Dan Rosanova of Confluent. We talk about Confluent Cloud, we talk about Kafka and many other things. Enjoy. That was my interview with Dan Rosanova from Confluent. All right, I have a little uh, few announcements to make. I am probably going to put the podcast on a little bit of a pause um, for various reasons. So DZone, the place that I mostly wrote my kind of technical opinions and reviews and interviews up for, has shuttered their program that it was doing them for. So a lot of these podcast interviews became articles there, kind of helped me fund what I do in some respects. Um, so I have no real outlet for a lot of the interviews at the moment, apart from the podcast. And the podcast is moderately popular, but not as popular as posts there. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to rethink how I'm going to do these things. I'm thinking of maybe going back to video. I'm thinking of maybe combining a few of the ideas I have right now, like the DX teardown, the interviews. Uh, I may look for new outlets. I'm not 100% sure yet, but I want to take a little bit of time to sit back and think about it and think about what it could be, how it could be. The show's been running for some time now, uh, so it potentially is a good time to think about uh, doing something different. I'm not 100% sure. I may switch back to just doing a links show. Um, really not sure yet so i'm gonna take a little bit of time to think about what that could be in the meantime you can always find what i'm up to at christianchiller.com it'll be a little quieter obviously but uh, i will start posting my various videos i have been working on behind the scenes and actually two new podcasts there very soon and kind of the post-production phases of all of those right now and anything new i get up to uh, i think there's going to be a few new things from me coming soon but probably longer form projects um, so there'll be less updates, but uh, bigger ones when they come. And I may still keep up the newsletter in the meantime. I may actually finally uh, do the idea I had some time ago of having separate newsletters for different topics. So um, a lot of the links that I mentioned here also go into my weekly newsletter. So you can keep signing up for that in the meantime. So there'll be summaries of my favorite links from each week anyway. Uh, although I've got to get all this onto the website. So... Yes, it's a, possibly a little pause on the Weekly Squeak right now. Let me know what you think about that, if you have any thoughts, any opinions. And um, yeah, I'll be back soon. Maybe in exactly the same format, maybe in a different format. Not sure quite yet. Watch this space. And in the meantime, if you have been for to this episode and all the other episodes, thank you very much for listening. 